Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hey, welcome back. I am Chris. I'm the pastor at Compass. As always, I'm really glad that you are with me today. Now, I want to start today telling you about a time when I lied and when I got caught. So I was 12 years old when I went to my first year of junior high camp, and it was this awkward and embarrassed age that all of us experienced when we were in middle school. And all I wanted was for people to think that I was cool. I wanted people to think I was cool so badly that when the guys in my room made up nicknames for each other that week, I asked them all to call me Snake. That's how desperately I wanted to be cool. I asked them to call me Snake. And so that week we split into teams that competed all week so that you could win camp, I guess. And, and one of the competitions was a canoe relay race that needed eight volunteers. But when our team captain asked for people who knew how to paddle a canoe, only seven people raised their hands. So what do you think a 12-year-old kid in a sleeveless Ghostbusters shirt named Snake, whose voice hasn't changed yet, would do in that situation? I raised my hand and I said, I know how to canoe. I did not know how to canoe. For the record, I'd never been in a canoe or rode a boat of any kind in my entire life. I just wanted people to think I was cool. And I figured, how hard can it be? Well, as it turns out, really hard. <laughs> Our first three teams of the relay went out and you know they went all the way around and we had a huge lead. And it just left it to me and my partner to bring it home for an easy win. And when it was our turn, I hopped into the back of the canoe and we started paddling. Now, if you know anything about canoeing, you also know that the person in the back is responsible for steering the boat. I did not know that. So long story short, our lead evaporated as I spun our canoe in circles going in the wrong direction. Our team captain, he eventually had to come out in a paddle boat to tow us back to shore in last place. And just so you know, while they may initially sound the same, there is a big difference between being cheered for and being yelled at. So why am I telling you this? Because for whatever reason, this event is a core memory for me. This, it's part of my origin story. Out of all the years that I went to camp, and I went a lot, and out of all the things that ever happened at camp, this is the one thing that stands out to me the most when I think about camp. And I think it's because this event helped me to understand who I am, maybe. That deep down, I'm a person who wants to be cool, who needs to be good at things, and who wants to be a key part of helping his team win. And also that maybe deep down, I just want everyone to call me Snake. Everything has an origin story, a starting point. Everyone and everything in your life started somewhere at some time. You have a starting point. You may have been started on purpose, or you may have been started by accident. Either way, I'm glad you're here. But our origin stories don't just include when we started. They include other things, events, core memories, key parts, of life that had a role in shaping who we are because origin stories can be complicated and complex. And I tell you all this because today we are talking about the origins of Easter, which deep down are also complicated and complex. 
Because look at this, the way we celebrate Easter today is actually made up of a bunch of different traditions from all over history. Easter is the day when in the church we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But did you know that the word Easter is not in the Bible anywhere? In fact, the word Easter actually comes from the name of an ancient pagan fertility goddess named Ostara. Ostara was associated with the coming of spring, so she was associated with new growth and new life after winter. Now, there were early Christians who celebrated the resurrection of Jesus in the spring, and they began to adopt some of the same annual traditions as the people who celebrated Ostara including things like the Easter bunny and Easter eggs, which again, I'm, I'm very sure you're going to be surprised to find out are not in the Bible. But Easter, the celebration of the resurrected life of Jesus and the new life represented by spring, these two things ended up combining aspects of the two different holidays to the point where one of the most holy days on the Christian calendar actually bears the name of a pagan fertility goddess. So why am I bringing this up? Well, it's not to say that all of this is bad, because I don't think so. I mean, the Easter Bunny shows up every year at Compass. But the origins of Easter are made up of a bunch of traditions and ideas that come from a lot of different places. And that can make it easy, I think, for us to miss the truth that lies at the heart of it all. And so today we're going to look at the origins of Easter from the perspective of the people who were there when Easter originated. And that starts in the first century century world of Roman-occupied Israel. Okay, so let's go back. Rome had conquered the known world in the first century. They made independent nations subservient to the Roman government when they conquered them. And this included the Jewish homeland of Israel, which they had conquered around 63 BC. Now, this was an incredibly violent time. Rome was ruthless in suppressing any sort of insurrection or rebellion, whether it was real or perceived, from the people in the nations that they defeated. This was a time that was full of racial, ethnic, and religious tension. Roman citizens had rights that no one else did, which created tension between different races and nationalities. Rome permitted conquered nations to worship their gods as long as their worship didn't cause problems. But these religious divisions, they created different classes of people, which affected people economically. And the poverty gap between the wealthy and the poor was just outrageous. And so all of these people were smashed together by the might of Rome, and then they were divided by a million other little things. And caught up in all of this were the Jewish people who were without a nation, they were without a leader, and they only had one hope, a coming Messiah. A Messiah was a leader who they believed God was going to send who would defeat Rome and who would reestablish the nation of Israel as a world power. So in the midst of all of this, a man rose up and he spoke with authority and power. This man claimed to be a prophet sent by God, and and people began following him. A few at first, and then dozens, and then hundreds. This man claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, and people believed him. And when the Roman government caught wind of this, they thought that his following could be the start of a potential Jewish uprising. 
So the Roman government sent out a regiment of troops who killed a bunch of his followers, took this Messiah, chopped his head off, and then they carried it back into Jerusalem. His name was Theodos, and I bet you've never heard of him. People thought that Theodos was the Messiah, but after he was killed by Rome, all of his surviving followers scattered because the Messiah doesn't die, and Theodos became a footnote in a history book. But then another Messiah rose up. This one was a military man, and he raised an army of over 100,000 followers. I mean, he raised a big army that was so powerful, they actually defeated the Roman army in a handful of, of military engagements. And the people embraced him. They believed in him. They, they said, he must be the Messiah because he has the power to defeat Rome, which means he has the power to enforce the rule of a new Jewish kingdom over the whole world. And this Messiah, he actually pushed the Roman army out of Jerusalem and held it for more than three years, at least until Rome regrouped and destroyed his army, killing him and a bunch of his followers. His name was Simon Barcoba, and I bet you've never heard of him. Even though Simon Barcoba had hundreds of thousands of followers, they all scattered because messiahs don't die. And Simon Barcoba became a footnote in history book. And then there was Jesus. Over three years, Jesus developed a following of up to thousands of people that believed he was the Messiah, their new king for a new age of Jewish dominance. But there was a problem. The Jewish political and religious leaders, they didn't like him. Not only did his teachings challenge their kind of religious rule and control, but the Jewish religious leaders had seen Rome react to previous messiahs and their insurrections. The Jewish leaders had a good balance of power with Rome going, and they didn't want to rock the boat. So they, so they manipulated the Roman fear of revolt, along with the Jewish fear of reprisal, in order to have Jesus arrested, beaten, whipped, and ultimately publicly executed. And just like all the other messiahs before him, Jesus was killed by the power of Rome. And do you know what Jesus' followers did when that happened? Look at Matthew 25, verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus' followers did the same thing that the followers of every other Messiah did. They scattered. Because Messiahs don't die. A dead man is a defeated man, and he can't be the king of a new nation. And so like the followers of every potential Messiah who came before and after Jesus... His followers deserted him. They pinned their hopes on Jesus, but they realized they were wrong. And after Jesus died, there were no followers of Jesus. Because when Jesus died, his followers stopped believing in him. Now, this is a weird thing to think about because the story doesn't end there. The New Testament continues. And it goes on to tell the story of how the church started. It also tells us that followers of Jesus, including uh, those among the 12 disciples, that there were followers of Jesus who were tortured and killed for following him. Other historical accounts confirm the fact that early Christians were willing to die for their belief in Jesus. I mean, just among Jesus's disciples alone, uh, Peter was crucified upside down. John was boiled in oil. James was killed with a sword just a few years after Jesus's death. Uh, Philip, he converted a Roman proconsul's wife 
to Christianity, and he was tortured and killed as a punishment by her husband. And Matthew, who wrote what we just read, he was stabbed to death. That's very different from all of those other dead messiahs whose followers abandoned them and disappeared from history. So why did Jesus' followers regroup to the point where they were willing to die for him? Something happened. Something happened in between when they stopped believing in Jesus and when they were willing to die for their faith in Jesus. So what was it? What was the thing that happened? Well, the Apostle Paul lays it out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried. Now, we know all this, right? I mean, up to this point, this is no different than any of the other messiahs who who died, who were killed by Rome. But Paul continues. He says, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. Okay. There are people out there who say that Elvis and Tupac are still alive. Okay, so this is not a new phenomenon to say that people who are dead are still alive. But I don't know anyone who's willing to die for that belief. Kill me. I believe in Elvis and his life so much that I'm willing to die for it. So, But how do we know this is true? I mean, Jesus' resurrection could still totally be a lie. Well, Paul continues. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. See, at the heart of what Paul is saying is this. Jesus lived, Jesus died publicly, and Jesus was raised from the dead. These are claims. But then Paul explains the basis for these claims. And it's that people saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Hundreds of people who are still alive, who could be looked up today, right now, interviewed and questioned about what they saw, were alive. They saw it. People who knew Jesus, his best friends and family. And you might say this. You might say, well, yeah, that's why they made it up. I mean, his disciples spent three years following him, and his his family didn't want him to die in vain. So, yeah, all these people made up this lie about his resurrection so that they could keep Jesus' teachings alive. Well, let's look at that argument for a second. I won't deny that people are willing to lie to keep all kinds of belief structures alive. I mean, QAnon is still a thing. But let's go back to part of my origin story, the canoe race. I lied about my canoeing skills because if we'd won, people would have thought I was a hero. And I was willing to lie for canoe glory. But if the camp had said this, if they'd said, The winners of this canoe race will get glory and fame, but the losers will be beheaded on the beach. I would not have done it. Put my life on the line for paddling skills that I knew I didn't have? No way. Never. I might be willing to tell a lie, but I'm not willing to die for a lie. And maybe Jesus' followers and family would have been willing to lie about the resurrection to defend Jesus' name or to keep his ministry alive, But would they be willing to die for that lie? To convince others to die for that lie? To see their friends, family, even children die for that lie? I can't imagine that they would be willing to die for something that they knew to be untrue. But they were willing to die for something 
that they believed beyond a shadow of a doubt to be true. And that thing is an event. Jesus was dead, then he wasn't, and they saw it. I mean, look at the things that they said after Jesus' resurrection as the brand new church is just getting started. I'm going to rip through these really quick. Uh, Acts 2.32, Peter says, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. In Acts 3.15, it says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Acts 5.32, we are witnesses of these things. We saw these things. Acts 10.39-41, through And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. And then God allowed him to to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. They're saying this, they're saying, look, This happened, and we are witnesses. We saw it. This is the true origin of Easter, and it's also the foundation of Christianity, an event. Jesus' followers stopped believing in him when he died, but then something happened, and they believed in him again, at great cost to themselves, the cost of their own lives. And the thing that happened was that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul puts an exclamation point on this in 1 Corinthians 15. It starts in 14. He says, If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul just goes all in on this. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, Christianity is meaningless. By the way, Paul, who said this, Paul was beheaded by Rome for following Jesus because he was also willing to die for his belief in the resurrection of Jesus, which he said was proof from God that Jesus is who he said he was, the Messiah sent by God to restore the world, to change our relationship with God and to invite us into a whole new life with him. And all of that is based on one thing. Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and people saw it. This is the origin of Easter and the foundation of all Christianity. Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and people saw it. So what does this mean for us as we wrap up? Well, it means Christianity is not about religion or rules or doctrine and theology. Instead, it's about a question that every person must answer for themselves, and it's this. What do I do with Jesus? If he really died and rose again, what does that mean for me? If his resurrection was so true that people who witnessed it were willing to die for it and put others' lives at risk for it, what do I do with that? What do I do with the the life and teachings of Jesus if it's true? What does his key message about God's deep and defining love for me mean if it's backed up by the cross and the resurrection? And how much more weight do Jesus' core teachings to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves have if those teachings are backed up by an empty grave? May we be people who say yes to Jesus, 
just like the people who saw their risen Lord did. And may the same power that raised Jesus from the dead live in those of us who follow him. And may we take hope in the fact that while the origin story of our faith began with the death of Jesus, it ends with him being raised to life. And it ends with him leading those of us who are willing to say yes to him into that same new life, that same resurrection life that he was raised into. My prayer for you is that today you would be willing to say yes to Jesus. That if you are a follower of Jesus, that even now you would wrestle with this question. What do I do with Jesus? What do I do with the fact that people, people were willing to die for belief in the truth of a resurrected Jesus? And if Jesus was raised from the dead, what does that mean for me? If you have questions, reach out to us, but I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.